I invite you to open your Bibles again to the book of Ezra. I hope uh, between the time that Pastor Wayne read from the passage and now that I'm up here that you have found Ezra. I trust you have. Just wanted to open with a bit of a question this morning. When you think back on your life, who are the people that have been important in bringing you to where you are at today? Or what are the circumstances that have been important in bringing you to this place in your life? It could be the person that led you to pursue the vocation that you have today. Or it might be an event that happened that led you to the person that you eventually married. Or there might be something that led you to start going to church. Who are the people or what are the circumstances that that have been integral in bringing you to where you are at today? For myself, I've often thought of a person that was significant in me being where I am right now, and that person is my paternal grandfather. If he was alive, he would be 122 years old. He was born in 1891. You might be saying, if he's that old, do you even remember him? Well, yes, I do. Because my, we call them Opa, my Opa Sudfeld died when he was 106. Almost exactly 16 years ago. And so I remember him very well. Well, my grandfather was the first in his family to become a Christian. God, in his mercy, saved my grandfather when he was a soldier in World War I. After the war was done, as a, a son of a, of a well-to-do landowner in Germany, he was expected to marry someone from upper-class nobility. But instead, he married a farmhand's daughter. Why? Because she was a Christian. Well, from that marriage came my father. He grew up in a Christian home where he was able to hear and to respond to the gospel. And then my dad brought me up in a Christian home and took me to church where I was able to hear the gospel and by God's grace respond to the gospel. One thing about my grandfather was that he always prayed for one of his sons to be a pastor. He had four sons and four daughters. And that never happened. None of his children ended up being pastors. But he lived long enough to see one of his grandsons go to seminary and become a pastor. And that grandson was me. So God, in calling my grandfather to faith in Christ, used that man's conversion and possibly his prayers to call me to himself and eventually into ministry. And so my grandfather was a significant person in bringing me to where I am today. I could say that his fingerprints are all over who I am. Well, for the next two Sundays, we're going going to be in a couple of books in the Old Testament that we might not be so familiar with. But there's some books that describe the last days, chronologically, of Old Testament history. Ezra and Nehemiah. They describe how Israel returned after being exiled out of the Promised Land. And and in these historical events, we find out some things about the nature of God in, in, first of all, in exiling these people and bringing them out of the land. You'll read about that in in 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. But then again, in bringing a few people back in to sort of repatriate the land. 
that promised land. In Ezra, we'll notice that this return from exile would never have happened had God himself not carefully orchestrated the circumstances. Ezra knew full well that God made it possible for these exiles to return to Israel and to, in his case, rebuild the temple. In Nehemiah's case, they, they rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. But God's fingerprints, God's handprints are all over this return to the land. And this is made abundantly clear in Ezra 7 and 8. Like I said, Israel is all about the rebuilding of the temple, this place of worship that was central to the identity of God's chosen people. By the time that they returned, the the temple had been torn down and there was no place for them to worship when this community of God came together. And so when we get to chapter 7 of Ezra, the temple rebuilding project had just gotten completed. A group of Jewish exiles under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel had returned and eventually rebuilt the temple. And so that's kind of a warp speed summary of chapters 1 to 6. Between chapter 6 and chapter 7, you don't see this in your Bibles, but there's a gap of about 58 years. And then chapter 7 to 10 describe a second group of people that return to Jerusalem. And these people are led by Ezra. So Ezra chapter 7 and 8. These are two long chapters, and I'm not going to read all of them this morning. But as I read some sections, I I want you to look for something. One phrase that repeats itself in these sections that I'm going to read. So I'll point out the reference, and then you can follow along in your Bibles if you have one. Look at chapter 7, verse 6. This Ezra... And it's, it talks about this Ezra. It describes him first as being the son of all these people that I made Pastor Wayne read this morning. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And go down to verse 9. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. The next section, up to verse 26, is sort of the content of the decree from King Artaxerxes, who is the king of Persia, a a, a pagan king. And he basically just summarizes verse 6 there, that the king granted him all he asked. And so this king sort of gives... Ezra, carte blanche, to do whatever he wants in going back to the land. And then the first part of chapter 8 is a list of the people that came with Ezra. And then we just want to pick it up in verse 15 of chapter 8. Ezra says there, I gathered, or, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joiarev and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Ido, the leading man at the place of Kasiphia, telling them what to say to Ido and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Kasiphia, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Mali, the sons of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen. I'll just read up to there. And over to verse 31 of chapter 8. 
Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The good hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by, by the way. And so what we have here is the circumstances that made it possible for these people to return to the promised land. It's a, it's a great story. Take time to read it. It's got lots of twists and turns in it. But did you notice the words that kept popping up? Kind of a little commentary that was thrown in along the way, and I kind of emphasized them when I read. The good hand of the Lord was on me, or something to that effect. Six times that little phrase shows up in these two chapters. And so underpinning the historical accounts and the events that happened is this constant activity of God's hand. If we think of it in terms of, of, of a liberation or of a bringing out of uh, slavery, the, this exile that happened, we could say that God's strategic, always present, behind-the-scenes activity made this freedom possible. And even as they left the land, the hand of God was still on them this entire time. He never took his hand off. And so when we talk about the hand of God being on these events, we're talking about God's providence. We're talking about God's sovereignty, God's activity, the influence of God in causing his purposes to be realized. So let's take a closer look at Ezra 7 and 8. And as we do that, we'll learn how we should look for the good hand of God throughout the circumstances of our lives, and in particular, on our spiritual lives, as we live as exiles, as it were, on our way to our homeland, on the way to our eternal home. From these two chapters in the book of Ezra, there are four areas in which God's hand is evident. The first is that God's hand is evident in picking the ideal leader, and you see that in those verses that Pastor Wayne read. It's in that section that we learn something about our man, Ezra. The first five verses basically tell us that he's a priest, a direct descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses. And he's called there in verse 5, the chief priest. It's this Ezra that went up to Jerusalem. But we also learn something not only about his heritage, about who he's a descendant of, but we also learn about his character. Verse 6 says, He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. He was a man with skill. And his skill set was specifically in the area of the law of Moses. He was a man of the book. When we get to Nehemiah 8, we'll find out that the people want him to read from the book. And he does in a very powerful way there in Nehemiah chapter 8. We think, think about how Ezra is exactly who they needed at this time. He was a, here was a group of people who had been kicked out of their land for the last 70 years. This group of people was distinct for the fact that they worshipped according to the law of Moses as was, was prescribed by God back in Exodus on Mount Sinai. Yet for 70 years they were living in a foreign land with no temple, No way to worship God. No, there's people around the world that that live like this. They have no place to worship, and they get together in homes wherever they can. Well, that's what these exiles were were like. And and we can't can't really think of that because, you know, we have this building here, and we come every Sunday, and we know generally what's going to happen and that we are going to have an opportunity to worship. But they didn't have that for this whole time. This was an entirely new generation now that didn't even know the law and didn't know how to worship, 
didn't know how to live according to God's laws. So the people that had left were mostly dead by now. And so these people didn't even know how, how to worship. And so who better to lead them back than a scribe? Someone who is skilled in the law of Moses. And so Ezra was the ideal man that God picked for this mission. Verse 10 tells us a little bit more about this scribe. Ezra had set his heart, it says, to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. I just love that description. This is, this is something that all of us who teach should aspire to. Ezra is a, is a model for us, someone to emulate. He set his heart to study and to live it and then to teach it. It's a picture of determination. Ezra was determined to know God's word and to live God's word and then to pass it on, to teach it. And so for Ezra, it wasn't enough to study the law. His knowledge affected the way he lived, and he didn't just care about knowing God's law, he lived it out practically, and then that knowledge and that transformed life sort of spilled out and led him to teach those laws. He wanted to make sure his knowledge and his life was passed on. It kind of reminds us of Paul's words to a young pastor, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4.16. He writes to Timothy and encourages him there. He says, pay attention to yourself, which is talking about his life, and to your teaching. In other words, set your heart to study it and to practice it and to teach it. So Ezra had the qualities and character that were needed in that leader for that time. But did you notice our line there? This was no accident. This was no coincidence. God himself carefully orchestrated that it would be Ezra who would lead his people back into his city to worship at his temple. Verse 6 says, The hand of the Lord his God was upon him. And in verse 9, The good hand of his God was upon him. God handpicked this Ezra to lead these exiles for this time. And the evidence of that is that his hand is upon him. The liberation of these captives required a certain kind of leader. And God provided exactly what was needed. He chose Ezra, a man who loved God's word and who was fixed on studying it and living it and teaching it. It's a good model for us that are fathers even on this Father's Day. We should be the worship leaders of our homes. And in order to do that, we should be studying God's Word. We need to be living God's Word and then passing God's Word on to the next generation. My question for you is how do you choose, now thinking about leaders again, how do you choose whom you will follow? How do you choose the people that you hope will lead you to grow in your relationship with God? Notice that God did not choose a leader who was skilled at interpreting the culture. That seems to be the pattern these days. What we need most is someone that can relate to the culture. But God didn't do that. God chose a leader who was skilled in the law of Moses. Now, I'm not saying it's not important that our leaders need to know the culture and to study the culture. That obviously needs to happen because we live in this culture. But, but that might be of secondary importance. Of primary importance is to have a leader who loves God's word and who studies God's Word, and whose life reflects God's Word, and who desires to teach God's Word, and then to let that knowledge of God's Word inform how he interprets the culture. 
That's the kind of leader you ought to be looking for, is you desire to grow in godliness and becoming, in becoming more like Christ. So don't just follow people that say, you know, all sorts of this, give you the wisdom of the world and who even um, come across or, 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 or look at themselves as, as preachers and yet never open the word of God. Those aren't the people you should follow. You need to follow the people who are skilled in the law of God and who live the law of God and who want to teach the law of God. That's the kind of leader you ought to be looking for as you desire to grow in godliness and becoming more like Christ. There might be some of you here this morning that are new to our area. This happens a little bit more in the summer, but it could be happening already. There's people looking for a church. I would advise you to look for a church that has these characteristics. Ask yourselves questions like, do, your, do their leaders value the Word of God? Do they read the Word of God when the church gathers? We fall short on this area in our church, but we're trying to do that more and more to make sure the Word, not the people up here, but the Word is what's central to our worship gatherings. Do their leaders value the Word of God? Do they read the Word of God? Do they sing the Word of God? Do they preach the Word of God? Secondly, God's hand is evident in paving the way by using a surprising source. God actually uses here a pagan king to supply all the necessary resources to worship according to God's original instructions. You see that they're summarized in verse 6. And then the details are in the letter from King Artaxerxes. The king granted Ezra all that he requested. This is really pretty amazing. That God uses a, a pagan king, someone who doesn't worship the one true God, to help the worship of the one true God happen. He gives Ezra all the people. He gives Ezra all the money he needs, all the currency, and he gives them all the supplies that they needed to start worshiping God once they got back to Jerusalem. But down in verse 27, we read that Ezra, what Ezra thought about the king's kindness. Look again at chapter 7, verse 27. He says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So he's blessing God here for using this pagan, uh, not a God worshiper, to give him everything he needed to restore the worship of the people. How does Ezra respond? Does he write a thank you card to the king for all his gifts? No, he writes a blessing, a, a doxology to God. He has extended loving kindness to me before the king. And then our line, I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me. Ezra knew full well that God was using a pagan king to accomplish God's own purposes. This entire story is how about how God can move empires to accomplish his will. When God wants to move his people, who were really insignificant in number or in status, he can move massive empires to make it happen. In chapter 1, the first verse says, it says, God stirred up the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to send people back to Jerusalem to build the temple. So right through this book, from beginning to end, 
we see this. In chapter 6, it's King Darius who issues a royal decree, and now it's a different king, again, King Artaxerxes. Without them even realizing it, God is using these, uh, these rulers sort of as chess pieces to bring his people back. We should look at our present situation with that in mind as well. When you think about politics and you think about how things are going south and in many different ways, just think about this. God's good hand is always on his people. He will always accomplish his purposes. Our neighbors to the south are now in, in their second term with an African-American president, but he's also a very uh, pro-choice president. Definitely not pro-life. But friends, let's not doubt that God is still in charge. Let's not think that he is ever frustrated. Who's to say that God is not using this president and even our prime minister who's now wavered on, on, on those sort of things, on the, on the right to life, to, to rise up and to pray and to try to figure out a God-honoring way of stopping the unthinkable slaughter. Maybe he's raising up Christians to do that just for a time such as this. When all this travesty is happening seemingly with the approval of our governments who are funding agencies who are who are doing this unspeakable thing. Wouldn't you love to be able to say down the road that God's hand was on us and using the present governments to end abortion? We pray it might be so for God's glory. But I ask you, have you ever seen God, thinking of this personally now, in surprising places? I'm sure you could all name times when you've seen God work through people, work through situations that were beyond your imagination. I knew some people in our former church who were introduced to Christ by attending a friend's funeral at our church. And they look back and say, who would have thunk that God would do something like that, would bring us to a funeral of a friend, and that we would be introduced to Christ through a pastor who preached the gospel at this funeral. You need to make sure you don't limit in your own mind what God can do and through what means he can do it. I know some of you have been praying for unsaved family for a long time. Keep doing it. Keep on doing it. Keep going to God. If anything else, this is a reminder that God is in control. Even when things to be, seem to be going south, we can be comforted by the fact that God is sovereign. That he, as Romans 8 says, that he causes all things to work together for good for those who Love him and those who are called according to his purpose, even in surprising ways and through surprising sources. Number three, God's hand is evident in providing a perfect supporting cast. This is in chapter 8, verses 15 to 20. In chapter 8, verse 15, Ezra stops to take a look at who he's got with him. And what he finds shocks him. He notices he's missing an important group of people there. Did you catch that when I read it? It's almost like he's taking roll call and he gets down to the priests and they say, here, and then he says, Levites, Levites, and there's no answer. Kind of looks at it and says, what, no Levites? There's no Levites. Great, now we have a problem. So what's so bad about Levites not being there, the sons of Levi? Well, you need to remember now that the main purpose for this group of exiles to come back to Jerusalem was to make sure the, the worship service was running the way God meant it to run at the new temple. 
The priests were an important part of that, obviously. But the Levites were important too. They were the singers and the gatekeepers. They were also in charge of all the utensils that they used in Old Testament temple worship. And so when Ezra found that there were no Levites, he just had to stop. He couldn't continue with the journey. And if there's anything that we know about worship, it's that God cares about every detail, that we get it right. So the fact that there were no Levites was a problem. Just think of us having a worship service without musicians. Wouldn't seem like a worship service. Wouldn't seem complete, right? There'd be something missing. Ezra realized that they were missing an important piece of the puzzle, and so he sends a delegation away to go and get some Levites. Find me some Levites. And what happens? Well, they get 38 Levites and 220 temple servants. And again, Ezra is amazed with the abundant provision of servants. And he attributes this supply, verse 18, to the good hand of God upon us. The lesson for us is that just like God supplied the supporting cast, the seemingly menial labor, I would never say that about our singers here, for the congregation there in Jerusalem, he also provides the people to serve in the church. And no service is ever menial or unimportant. There was a need for people who could support the work the priests were doing. The fact that Ezra didn't find any Levites then is a problem. There's a place for priests, but there's also a place for others. The church cannot function the way God meant it to function without the musicians and without the money counters, without the ushers, without the greeters, without the decorators, without the kitchen staff, without the children's workers, without the, the youth leaders, without the 55-plus committee, without the music committee, the missions committee. I know I'm missing some, but you know what I mean. A church cannot function without servants, those people that God supplies to do the work of ministry. 1 Corinthians 12 compares the church to a body, and Paul talks about how in a church there need to be eyes, there need to be hands, there need to be feet, those parts of the body that are more visible. But he also talks about how the less visible parts of the body are equally important, even though we don't see them. In a church, God supports all kinds of, uh, appoints all kinds of people. That's the only way it's going to work. He designed it that way. It's the only way he designed it to work. And we praise God for doing that in our church. Our church would not function without our Levites, without our temple servants. The conference that we had here last week was a perfect example of that. We needed a number of people to come to de- together to do little pieces, seemingly insignificant, to make the whole thing happen. The question is, if we were to take inventory, would we find that we're missing some Levites? Are you maybe part of this church or, or another church and are physically able to serve but are not involved in any kind of ministry? Just leave that with you as a challenge. Finally, God's hand is evident in protecting them on their journey. Look again at chapter 8, verse 21. He says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek him, to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, for our children and all our goods. So when we pray for safe trips, here's where we get that from. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and 
horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who who forsake him. And so we fasted and implored our God for this. And, listen to that, he listened to our entreaty. Look again at verse 31. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And what does he say next? The hand of our God was on us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. These verses show us that we're dependent on God for all the circumstances of life. We even saying that we, we bless him when he gives good to us. We bless him when he takes things away. But we're dependent on God for everything, even for our journeys. As they gathered at the river, Ezra proclaimed a fast. And the purpose of this was to display a humble dependence on God for their upcoming 900-mile trip to Jerusalem. It's like going from here to Winnipeg by foot. They didn't ask the king for the protection of his royal troops, a request that they probably would have received. But they used this opportunity to witness to the king of the protecting and the favorable hand of God that was on them. And when they get there, verse 31, they give credit for their safe arrival again to the hand of God in spite of the dangers that lurked. They knew that every step of the way from the decree to the preparation to the makeup of the group to the safe journey, that Ezra there acknowledges the hand of God through every step. Now, we could make obvious application here to pray for our trips, our journeys, which is a good and right thing to do, but I want to extend the application to our spiritual lives. If you're a Christian, you ought to replay often the course, the journey of your life, something just like what I did at the beginning of the message there, and to look for evidences of how God was, has brought you safely to himself to start with, and then to this community of worshipers, and for your whole life as a believer. And just think about how God has kept you safe in his hands. There have been enemies. If you're a Christian, have been a Christian for long enough, you'll know that there's true. There's enemies that have tried to upset your journey. There have been ambushes along the way. But God has kept you safe. Can you say with Ezra that the hand of our God was over me? And he delivered me from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes along the way. You should be able to say that. I'm sure most of us don't even realize half of the ambushes that God has helped us avert. Interesting that Jesus says in John 10, 28, My sheep hear my voice, they follow me. He says, I give them eternal life. And then he says this, And no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. We could say the same thing as a church, not just individually. We wouldn't be who we are, where we are, had the hand of God not been over us. I know those that are involved in, were involved in building this facility would attest to that, would give testimony to that. But here's a biblical principle that would be a good reminder from time to time. God not only saves us and brings us to himself, but he also keeps us safe. He keeps us safe even when the enemy, Satan, tries to lead us astray, even when temptations lurk. And, and beckon us to deny the faith. Even when hard times make us feel like giving up. When it seems like God isn't there or that God is silent. Just realize that God protects you. That is the promise of his word. He will not let any 
thing or anyone snatch you out of his hand. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. The promises are all over Scripture. Jude says that God is able to keep you from stumbling. First Peter promises that your inheritance is protected by the power of God. The hand of God has delivered you from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes along the way. Praise God for that. So as you think about just these events in Ezra's story, I encourage you to apply it to yourself by, by seeing it through the eyes of an exile. And then to recognize the hand of God. If you stop to think of it, the, the entire Bible tells a story of a people in exile. The end of Genesis finds Jacob and his family leaving Israel for Egypt. Then the next four books of the Bible tell of a people on their way back to the promised land. And the hand of God is intimately involved in that return too. Then you think of the parting of the Red Sea. Enemies chasing them from behind, water before them, and God miraculously gets them through the water. Then we have our story of God's hand in returning another group of exiles to Israel, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. But all of these point to another more serious exile. We have been exiled from the garden, haven't we? This is one that all humans face. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and from the presence of God, they were exiled because of sin. And we, as people, are in Adam. People who have his nature. And we can't go back again because of our sin. We're hopeless, seemingly at the point of no return. But then God steps in. In his love and in his kindness and in his grace and through his good hand, he has pr- provided a way out, a way of return. He did it by picking and sending, what did he do? He sent an ideal leader, our captain, Jesus Christ. Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law. Jesus was a teacher who fulfilled the law by obeying it perfectly. Ezra was a priest. Jesus has become The great high priest, the forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, Hebrews says. In sending Jesus Christ as the one who would go before us and to die on that cross, taking upon himself the punishment from God that we deserve for our sin, we can truly say the good hand of the Lord was on us. Those words are gospel words. They make us think of God's favor upon us, God's grace, God's good hand in sending us his Son. Some of you might be here this morning and are still exiles. You haven't left Babylon yet. For you, this is good news. You can be saved exactly for that reason, because the good hand of the Lord is upon you. You're still in exile, separated from God, because you're unable to keep the laws of God perfectly, which is what God requires. But, but the good news is that the grace of the Lord has come in the person of Jesus Christ, who did keep those laws perfectly to save you from your sin and bring you back to God. And the Bible tells us us that that's a gift. It's not something we can earn. It's the good hand of God. And that good hand is available to all those who repent of their sins, who turn from their sins, and who trust in Christ and in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. For those of you that are Christians and are part of the church, Ezra 7 and 8 is an encouragement to recognize the good hand of God. Surrounding all the events and people and circumstances that these people encountered on their journey, Ezra always saw the good hand of the Lord. 
in a way, we too are still exiles. We have been saved, but we're still exiles because we're only part of the way back to the real promised land. We're not there yet. We are in this world, even though our citizenship is in heaven. So, so do you recognize the hand of God in all the circumstances of your life as you are on your way to your heavenly home? Proverbs 3, verse 6 tells us what we should do on the way. It says, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Do you see the hand of God in your church providing you a place where his word is cherished and studied and lived and taught? Do you acknowledge the hand of God and how he brought you to faith in Christ? Maybe even through surprising ways? Do you acknowledge the good hand of God in placing you in a church and in making you part of a worshiping community of believers and in giving you the gifts to serve in various ways? Do you acknowledge the hand of God in starting you on your journey and in opening your eyes to help you see your need for a Savior? And do you acknowledge the good hand of God in keeping you safe in your journey to your heavenly home? My prayer is that when I ask you about the one that is most important in bringing you where you are today, that you will be able to say without hesitation, the good hand of the Lord was upon me. Let's bow in prayer.